Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. My guest this week is Nathan Hill, who first joined me on the air back in 2017 with his best-selling debut novel, The Knicks, which was named the number one book of the year by Audible and Entertainment Weekly, and one of the year's best books by The New York Times, The Washington Post, NPR, Slate, and many others. You can find that interview up in our archives. Nathan's second novel, Wellness, is also a New York Times bestseller and was selected by Oprah Winfrey for her book club. It follows a couple, Jack and Elizabeth, from how they met back in the 90s into middle age, how marriage, parenthood, and the general crap of adulting in the modern technological age can transform a couple. He joins me today to talk about it, along with how his characters reveal themselves to him, how he manages time in a novel, how he weaves copious amounts of research into the narrative and plays with unconventional points of view, how he strikes the right balance between social commentary and character, and so much more. Nathan Hill, welcome back. Thank you. It's so nice to be back with you. So one of the fun things about having authors on for their second or third novels is the ability to look across their books and recognize their voice and style. And wellness is so distinct and different from the Knicks, but also I now recognize it is so obviously a Nathan Hill novel. You know, I can I can see you all over this. So that's <laughs> that's really fun. So I realized the last time we chatted, we didn't really have a chance to talk about your background and origins as a writer. And I thought maybe ah. before we dive into the book, we could start there. And it sounds like perhaps writing was kind of in your DNA from the very beginning. But talk about that path into writing. Sure, um, sure. Yeah, it was maybe a little unconventional. I grew up in a house that, you know, didn't really have books. My, my, I should say my parents were very pro-reading, but uh, but that's just not the background they, that they came from. And so there weren't that many books in the house. But, you know, I, every time, you know, we'd go to Kmart, I would beg for a toy and my parents would say no. But if I asked for a book, they would say yes every time. And and so I just kind of got trained to ask for books instead of toys. And that, that ended up being really, really productive for me. Um, so I grew up uh, reading a lot. My family moved around a lot when I was a kid. Um, we usually stayed in a place for maybe two, two and a half years before we would move again. And uh, and I found that books kept me company in that awkward bridge time between like, you know, you're the new kid and then eventually you settle in and find your find your people and find your friends. But there's that 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 awkward moment where it's like you just don't know anybody and you feel leprously alone. And books books were my savior during that those moments. And and so I was always a reader and then I just started writing. I mean I I'm in my home office right now, and I'm actually staring at the first book I ever wrote, which was in third grade. It's called The Castle of No Return. It's a choose-your-own-adventure book that, that I wrote for us, like a school contest, and it won. And my teacher read the book to the class, and the class was like following along with the story, and, and I was just sitting in the back of the room, just like close to pure joy. It was a wonderful <laughs> moment. And uh, and it was always something I did. I always wrote stories. I would read, I would read a Hardy Boys mystery, and then I would just write my own knockoff Hardy Boys mysteries and, you know, whatever I was into, I would just kind of imitate. It was, it was something I always did. And I, I knew I wanted to do it in life. But when I went to college, my parents were, you know, of the opinion that I shouldn't waste college on uh, something as frivolous as an English degree. And they wanted me to do something that would make money and write on the side. And uh, I don't, I don't blame them for that. It's like I'm, I'm among the first in my family to go to college, and and they didn't want me to waste the opportunity. So I understand. But I happened to go through dumb luck. I happened to go to undergrad at the University of Iowa, and I, I majored in my first two years there. I majored in biomedical engineering. But I discovered that you could study creative writing. And I also discovered that, that Iowa had one of the best creative writing programs in the country. And so, so I, uh, I took some classes in creative writing as an undergrad, and I was just hooked immediately. And, and so when my engineering guidance counselor told me at the middle of my sophomore year that I had to stop taking creative writing classes because I didn't have any more room in my engineering schedule. I promptly dropped the major and, and picked up English and, and started writing. I guess because of that, I came to writing a little bit late, I, I guess. You know, I wasn't doing it really seriously until basically junior year in college. So by the time I graduated, 
I knew I wanted to get an MFA in, in fiction writing, but I felt like I needed to marinate a little bit longer. I needed to hone my craft a little bit longer. And uh, there was an opportunity at the uh, local newspaper to be a reporter. And so I jumped on that and, and I wrote for in the Iowa City Bureau of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for a couple of years and wrote a thousand news stories. You know, I was on the, on the cops beat and the politics beat. I covered the Iowa caucuses. I covered house fires and car crashes. I wrote stories about zoning and development for the city council. And it was a great apprenticeship in in writing on deadline, in writing when you're not exactly inspired, and also just a facility with writing quickly and, and, and just being able to get something on the page that someone will be interested in. It was It was great. So I did that for a couple of years. And yeah, and then I applied for MFA programs. And uh, and by then, I lived in the Midwest my entire life, and I just wanted to see something new. So I, I applied only to East Coast and West Coast MFA programs. And uh, the one that accepted me was University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Uh, so that's where I went. And yeah, and so I spent three years there and um, <laughs> graduated. And then 12 years later, the Knicks came out. <laughs> <laughs> I love this because I can see so many little footprints in this book from the things you're talking about. I mean, your interest in research and biomedical engineering, I can see a little bit in here. I can see all mm -hmm. of that reporting and all that that beat journalistic style. And yeah, it's so interesting what goes into making a writer. Even that choose your own adventure. There was a section in the Knicks back in the day. Yeah. 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 There was. And and I loved I loved those books when I was a kid. I mean, I think that's what first hooked me onto reading was was the choose your own adventure genre, which which felt like both reading and a game simultaneously. And I would do that thing, you know, as a kid where you, you know, hold your finger and bookmark a page and like fast forward and like look at the choice that you've just made and see if it's the right one. And if it's not, you kind of come back, which is weirdly something I wish I could also do as an as an adult but oh yeah. yeah we all do yes yeah <laughs> and as a country yeah we could <laughs> yeah yeah that too yeah sure so would you say your mfa was sort of the most useful training you got as a writer or would you say it was something else maybe those those journalistic seeds or just doing of the writing but basically would you recommend that the mfa route to writers I would recommend it to people who need it. You know, I felt like I, I needed it. You know, I've met writers who didn't get an MFA, but they, they grew up in a, let's say, a very literary family and they had exposure to kind of arts culture, you know, from a young age. And that wasn't me, you know, when I, when I, I think there's, there's a little, a line in wellness that talks about this, but, uh, you know, when I was, when I was, you know, coming up and going to museums and seeing art for the first time, like looking at these like great pieces, these these masterpieces that that everybody else thought were cliches, like you know, they, they were rolling their eyes at art that I was seeing for the first time, you know. So so I feel like I needed it. I was behind. I needed it just to be become more well read and uh, and find authors that would speak to me, and uh, and and it was really really great for that. I, I mean, I found the authors that would kind of stayed with me for the rest of my life. And um, it was good for trying out different voices about trying different approaches and getting a very real-time response to what you're doing on the page. It was useful in finding people who are good readers for you and also identifying the people that you should not pay attention to, which is a really, really important skill even now. You know, it's, it's important to, when I, you know, I start reading a review of me and it's very, I, I can recognize very quickly whether it's one I should pay attention to or not. So that was all, that was all really useful for me. Now that might not be useful for other people, you know? So, I, and I think that I don't, I don't think the MFA was any more or less important than, you know, the 12 years of practice and failure that came after it, or the, the couple years of journalism that came before it. It's just kind of one stop along the way. So, you know, between deciding to be a writer, my junior year of college and the Knicks coming out, I mean, that's 20 years. And the MFA was like three of them. So it's, it's one important stop, but it's not the only one. Yeah, I always ask writers about this now in the debate with higher, you know, the cost of higher education and yeah. what's worth it, what isn't. A lot of people, I think, meet agents that way. And it does seem like sort of the fast track for writers to find access to this world that seems so inaccessible now. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I do when when I taught creative writing to undergrads and they would ask me this question, I would always tell them to not go into debt for an MFA. I, I, I think if you can find a program where you get a, you know, it, where you teach in exchange for tuition. I think that's the way to go. I, I wouldn't go into deep debt for an MFA. 
So wellness, wellness began a long time ago as a short story, I hear. And then it sounds like time passed for you and time passed for Jack and Elizabeth. Um, Uh So yeah, so tell me, tell me about that, the the very origins of, of this book and how it evolved. Yeah, chapter one in wellness was was written, I think, something like 20 years ago. Uh, and I, I never intended it to be a novel. You know, I, I just finished my MFA in Massachusetts and I'd moved to New York City because, you know, for a long time I thought, well, if I'm going to be a writer, I have to move to New York. And so I did. And I was working for a poetry nonprofit at the time. So you can imagine what my take home pay was like. <laughs> and then I was living in this tiny studio apartment in the story of Queens. And my my one window looked out onto this brick wall full of other windows looking into other apartments, you know, and one of those like, you know, New York City, you know, you get, you know, barely any light through the window, kind of a, kind of an apartment. And I just had this image of these, these two people who are like me, you know, young and kind of alone and feeling frustrated and a little, you know, depressed and catching glimpses of each other through those windows and kind of secretly watching each other and over the course of a winter slowly falling in love with the person that they see on the other side of the window. And I wrote it just as a short story, maybe like three or four page story, and then, you know, kind of forgot about it. And that then many, many years went by. And it was not until uh, the fall of 2015, I think, when I had finished edits on the Knicks, but the Knicks had not yet come out. There's this nice period between finishing edits and the book coming out where like you have nothing to do. You know? So <laughs> I, I was like, well, what's my next, what's my next book going to be about? What's I was searching for the next story. And um, by then I was you know, much older and happily married for many years. And I look back at this story that I, I wrote in my 20s. And in my 20s, I thought this is fabulously romantic. And in my 40s, I was like, no, this is hopelessly naive, <laughs> you know, like that, <laughs> that these two people would actually fall in love with the other person across a window has nothing to do with what a real relationship is like. And it's just these two people are just fantasizing. They're projecting fantasies of what they want their lives to be like onto the other person without actually knowing that person very well, which struck me as something that a lot of new lovers do. So it just got me thinking about fantasy, about delusion. And this was an era, 2005. 15, where, you know, I started noticing people on my Facebook feed getting very weird, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like uh, a conspiracy culture was was kind of on the rise online. Uh, friends and family members of mine were, were believing things that I, I kind of couldn't believe anybody, any reasonable person would believe. And, you know, it, it's no secret now that kind of we just felt like I was living in different fact universes from a lot of other people that reality had been kind of fractured and everybody had their own kind of version of it. And everybody was was accusing the other the other of living in a fantasy and so i was sort of looking for a story that would be a container for those concerns that i was having and and i thought well this short story is about delusion it's about fantasy it's and a lot of love stories are about fantasy and delusion and so I was like, well, maybe this would be a good Trojan horse for all of these other things that I've been thinking about. So yeah, I went back to that short story and that was, you know, 15 years later. So when readers read the book, hopefully chapter one and chapter two will feel seamless to them. But for me, there was a 15 year gap between writing them. And it's interesting if you would have taken off with that novel, then it wouldn't, you know, this is, so you started writing this pre-iPhone pre pre kind of social media right i mean all of the things that the novel becomes about didn't exist when the when the novel sort of started which i guess is sort of the point it's the evolution of this couple and how the world changed and how they changed i'm always curious how these characters reveal themselves to you because i feel like you know they have all this rich backstory and we go into jack and elizabeth's childhood and even beyond that, I mean, we go back into some of their, their, you know, generations of their family. And so it, you know, it feels very psychological. It just feels like you have a degree in psychology here because you really understand what makes these people tick and their origin stories and how their parents, you know, fucked them up and how that, you know, played out. So tell me along the way, like, were there times that Elizabeth or Jack would do something that you're like, ah, I understand what's driving you now or I you like this is a little secret thing that unlocks you a little bit for me kind of tell me a little bit about the process of exploring them it's funny I I was writing them 
in this way where I felt like I was getting to know them sort of forwards and backwards at the same time, you know, where forwards by I would just write scenes with them and uh, and, and I kind of get to understand who these people were more uh, the more I spent time with them on the page. But then something I, I would I would want something to happen to drive the present story forward. And then I would start searching for a backstory that might reasonably explain it, you know, not not in any kind of direct causal one plus one equals two kind of psychological way, but just in that way that our minds develop certain patterns. And some of those patterns are very, very deep. I mean, one of the things you you be, you get exquisitely uh, you exquisitely understand when you've been married for a long time is is how how much your behavior is driven by things that are, are in the deep past. You know, like when my wife and I are having an argument, like we're responding to some present concern. But there is a part of me that is like that four year old kid who was injured in some very memorable way that left me on guard for that thing forever. Mm-hmm. And I think we all sort of have that in us. We all have like. I feel like we're all pretty modular that way. We have different versions of ourselves sort of lingering around. And 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 I think the certain versions of ourselves were very useful to us in a previous iteration of our lives and that we can accidentally nourish those you know previous versions of us even when they're no longer useful. And so I think that's what's going on with Jack and Elizabeth, that they had to become a certain a certain kind of person in order to just survive their childhoods, but then in adulthood, they need to learn to let go of that person. And that that's really, that can be really hard to do, especially when you don't know it's, it's happening. And so that's the journey of, of them. And so, yeah, it was, it was a process of sort of trying to figure out like what would be, would happen in their past that would be a dramatically interesting for a reader and be psychologically accurate for a, a sort of explanation for why they're behaving this way in the present. Yeah. I always hear about you know, when you're attracted to somebody, your demons, your childhood demons play well with their childhood demons. <laughs> and you realize yeah. these two had such vastly different upbringings, but something about how they were wounded in childhood made those demons play well with the other person's demons. And um, yeah, exactly. And like, <laughs> there's this, I don't think it's a, it's a spoiler to say that there's, they have this fabulous meet cute at the beginning of the book. And then what you realize later on is that the meet cute is itself the thing they have to overcome. Like their own story about themselves becomes their antagonist because exactly the things that attracted them to each other in their twenties are the things that are repellent in their forties. Yes. <laughs> and which is so often the case. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> and there's this really sort of devastating thing we learn about midway through the book, even more about their meet cute, which is not so cute. <laughs> it's very, yeah, right, right. Very I, I, I won't, I won't give that one away. But, but I have had friends text me photographs of the picture, like pictures of the page where that's been revealed, and they, they'll just be like, "Oh no, oh no, right, yeah. yeah." There are a lot of those pages, actually. Oh no. Yeah, yeah. I did, I did that a lot in this book. I, I really wanted to. I mean, you know, the if there's a simplistic sort of dramatic argument being made in the book, is that it's that you know, try not to get too comfortable, too certain with your opinions, because as soon as you get too, you know, rigid or inflexible in your op- opinions, they they can drift into er- error. They can calcify into error. And so every time I think any any opportunity I had for the reader to like feel comfortable in an opinion about a character or a situation or a scene, I I would then upend that somewhere later in the book. I don't know, just to create exactly the feeling that my characters were having, that that their lives are undergoing this radical revision. So you had to be very conscious of that as you were doing it. I mean, I assume you also kind of got comfortable with their narrative as you're writing in longhand on Mm -hmm. a legal pad in your living room. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, so, so it was it a constant reminder to yourself? No, no, I've got to disrupt the norm, or I've got to upend this and make something else happen. That yeah, I, it was really like yeah, looking for looking for opportunities to do that, and some of those would reveal themselves really late in the process. There's there, there's this one that uh, that when when I was one of the places I lived when I was a kid was the, on a cattle ranch in southern Oklahoma, and I, I lived there for about two years. A very rural place. And we would see uh, some mornings I would be uh, going to school and I would see coyotes hanging by their hind legs on barbed wire fences. Mm. And in my head, I just created this story that like, oh, they must have gotten caught on the fence 
and died that way in this gruesome manner. And, you know, and, and, and I put, I made Jack come from the Flint Hills of Kansas, which is, you know, not too far from that part of the world. And so I imported that detail for him. And then I was just mentioning that to my parents, you know, I was just like, Hey, you know, this was after the first draft of the book was done. Hey, do you remember that thing about the coyotes? And I think it was my, my dad who said, oh no, that, they didn't get caught there. The ranchers put them there to keep away other coyotes. And I was like, oh, that's even more horrifying. And so of course <laughs> I had to use that in the book. Like Jack realizes much later that the story he had been telling about these coyotes all along was not right, you know? And that's a tiny, tiny example, but but it's a, I don't know, it's it's one of those opportunities to to make a character realize and then and thereby a, a reader realize that like all the stories you tell yourself about yourself or about the world are because we're all fallible and 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 we have limited knowledge are are in constant need of amendment and revision and uh and so yeah it was mostly just kind of looking for those opportunities like where could i do that so at what point in the writing process itself do you understand you have to go back generations to figure out who these people are like do you start sort of chronologically in the writing process to to unearth who these people are to understand them or do they do something and you're like now I have to you know figure out why they did that yeah this was a part of my project from the beginning for for this book for the Knicks it was it was different like the Knicks kind of maybe because I was a first-time novelist then and, and was really exploring that story as I went, I I didn't kind of realize that I wanted to go back to, you know, <laughs> World War II Norway uh, until I got there, you know, and I was like, oh, no, I need I need this. But for this book, this that was planned, you know. From the beginning, I wanted to bring the reader along with that experience that you have in life when you get to meet, when you get to know, you know, your actual partner or spouse, which is that, you know, you, you, you get to know them as you live with them and go on dates with them and see how they react to certain situations. But then you also hear old stories, you meet their parents, you see where they grew up and you kind of create this synthesis of past and present that sort of explains them to you. And I wanted the reader to have that experience of, of, uh, of partnership with the with both of these characters. So I knew I was going to go back in time. I knew I was going to kind of excavate their kind of generational traumas because that would that was important for for the reader to understand why they're making decisions in the present. How much time did you spend off the page that didn't make it into the book understanding like there's a character in here Ruth who is Jack's mother. Elizabeth's dad is, you know, sort of an atrocious human being, but we understand why. How much time did you spend really thinking about the psychology of those characters and what was driving them? I mean, quite a lot. It's it's almost accidental. Like, I start writing these characters, and like, they you those two you mentioned are like two of the most repellent in the in the book. You know, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. the people like readers really don't like those two people. But the problem, of course, is that as soon as I start writing them as bad guys, they feel shallow to me, and they they don't feel like actual human beings. And just like the the act of writing about someone almost necessarily creates some empathy even for the worst people that you're like all right why but why are they doing this why are the why are they the way they are and so it's it's almost like it's it's not i wouldn't say it's research so much as just spending time in their from their point of view like in their brains and you, you start i don't know finding your way towards you know deeper inner truth for them with ruth there's a, a woman in my family who you know was was deeply narcissistic and got only more so uh, as she you know approached old age and then you know had dementia and she was just a very hard person to be around um, as as narcissists are you know <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and 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 then you know talking to you know her immediate family the way they you know they they understood now why she was the way she was but when you're growing up with it you're like I guess that's just normal. And I guess that's my fault. And so you have these different stories growing up with it than you, than you do when you have kind of clarity of adulthood, you know? And so that, that really interested me that Jack would have a certain story about his mom or about himself because of her behavior and, and not realize until much later that, that maybe that's, that's an inaccurate story. Let's talk about how you dealt with time in the novel. And at some point you introduced this concept of the, the two types of time in I think they have Greek origins, you know, sort of mm. chronological time 
and event time, like things that just make sense, like a memory will come back to you immediately as though you're living through that again when something triggers it. Yeah. And you you did that, you, like you created that sensation in the book, which was crazy. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, thank you. It's, it was one of my one of the, one of the goals when I set out in the book. Yeah. So, not to get too pointy headed about it, but like, yeah, we, there are two words in ancient Greek that both translate as time, but they have very different meanings. One is chronos, which is just forward moving, countable time. You know, like the punch clock or Big Ben or very chronos, the forty day work week, whatever. And then there's this other sense of time called kairos, and that's like very a, a very felt sense of time. So it, it can it can refer to a moment of opportunity. It can re- refer to a collision between time periods. So, you know, I'm about to have Thanksgiving with my family. And when I do, you know, I'm going to insist on a certain kind of gravy that I've had ever since I was a kid, you know, and, <laughs> and, and that gravy, that's a kind of moment of Kairos. That's a slamming together of all of these various Thanksgivings over, over many, many years. I set the, the book in Wicker Park, Chicago, because Wicker Park is is this neighborhood of Kairos. It's a, neighbor, a neighborhood that has experienced really dynamic change over the last 120 years. You know, it's it was a uh, factory industrial sweatshop kind of a place for a long time, and then it was abandoned for a long time. And and then it became, you know, like the this haven for artists and uh, poets and, and, and writers. And, and then it uh, and then it got very gentrified and now it's, you know, one of those places that's just filled with like multinational brands. Yeah. And, and, and you look at a building in Wicker Park and you see simultaneously, you see a sweatshop that turned into a warehouse that turned into a coffee shop that turned into uh, the setting for a uh, real world, world Chicago that turned into a gym. You know, and those <laughs> those five those five layers of time are all existing simultaneously as you look at it. You know, and I got the sense that well, I mean, people are like that too. I mean, we have these layers of time flowing through us. You know, like childhood time, adult time, historical time, cultural time. They're all kind of bending us. You know, and I was like, well, that feels right to me, and that feels like an interesting way to organize the book. So instead of telling the book chronologically, I tried to tell the book chirologically, which is that every chapter will feel like some ligature to the previous chapter, that there's going to be some, even though they they move around in time a lot, there's going to be a feeling of familiarity between them. I just want to peer inside your brain. I'm like, how do you do this? But so, <laughs> so is that a big weird timeline on your wall? Like, how did you, how did you physically keep track of all of that? Oh yeah. Yourself? I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it right now. I still haven't taken it down. Yeah. I've got this big, corkboard on my uh, on my office wall and it's it's covered right now in note cards and the note cards are color coded for time period and uh, and for person and i i would move these cards around a lot this was a real headache producer when i was you know writing the book because you know, it's it's one thing to say I want to organize the book chirologically, but at the same time, it's still got to be interesting for a reader, and the reader has got to feel like some forward-moving story pressure, like some something makes you want to keep reading, some plot tugging at your curiosity. So, how to do that? How to go back and forth in time a lot while also feeling like there's a story being told was a real, yeah, <laughs> you know, head scratcher. Yeah. Um, I, I remember complaining to my wife in the kitchen so many days. I would come out of my office kind of forlorn and be like, should I just tell this story chronologically? This is too hard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I just move, I just move around those note cards quite a lot until finally a a kind of structure settled in that felt like, okay, I think this is, this is right. And, you know, I would show it to my agent and she would give me some very useful feedback and I'd kind of keep plugging away at it. And, and uh, until, until it, I had a draft and I was like, okay, this, this feels about right. And then I could go back and, and revise the book as if I knew what I was doing from the beginning. Yeah. It's insane. I mean, after I finished the book and then went back to look at how you structured it, I was like, I, I that is completely confounding to me. 
And you also introduced this concept of hyperlinks that we all, well, those of us old enough to remember <laughs> these days of hyperlinks. But the, I mean, that sort of resonated as well as a way of, you know, one thing will lead to another. I mean, that that's kind of how hyperlinks worked, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, hyperlinks are very chirological in that way. And and I was, I was really in, in the 90s, I was super into that literary movement of hypertext is what it was called back then, which is like little bits of text uh, told via a computer filled with links and it's it's hilarious to say now but but the link had to be invented and when it did people were super excited about what you could do with it that you suddenly could tell a story not on pages that readers would turn but rather you could tell a story you know in little bits with links that would lead you to other parts of the story and a reader could sort of find their own way through a story and explore the story rather than being told the story and a lot of you know english department theorists thought this was really special indeed <laughs> like I, I feel like i feel like i got through some of the lit crit classes in grad school simply because i wrote everything as hypertexts <laughs> and like you know my professors would be like i'm not sure how to read this and i'd be like that's your problem old dude you know yes yes <laughs> yes perfect that idea of kairos exists almost um, inherently in those in those hypertext stories. So yeah, so you would you would click on a link and it would take you to something associated with that sentence or that word that you clicked from. And in that way, like uh, like wellness is almost sort of structured as as if it's a hypertext, but without the links. You could probably imagine every chapter has some link to the previous chapter. It's almost as if in the previous chapter you clicked something that brought you to this thing. And hopefully as you read, you keep seeing these tethers to the previous thing you just read. That's ridiculous. Yes, you still have that same sense of playfulness. I mean you did a lot of playfulness in the Knicks too. And I'm like, this is so well-constructed, and then also so playful. We'll be back with more from Nathan Hill and Wellness in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. A pause to remind you to check out our Patreon page if you are enjoying the show, if you've learned any tips that may have inched you closer to publication, or you like these behind-the-scenes discussions of how these books get made. This is a chance to support the show. Any amount helps us out. You can find us at patreon.com slash writers on writing. And a quick reminder that we started a bookshop at bookshop.org, our affiliate page, where you can purchase Nathan's book and other books of past guests, as well as books that Barbara and I both recommend. Some craft books are up there. You can find us up there at bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Nathan Hill talking about wellness. Well, speaking also of your playfulness, your playfulness with point of view was fantastic. So, I mean, most of it is is kind of close third person, you know, following Jack or Elizabeth or their backstories. But then we kind of step out in time and we get like something told from the point of view of the algorithm itself for a section. <laughs> yeah. Another section that does that, too. I can't. It's. Uh, earlier in the book where it's not quite clear who's telling the story, but it's much more omniscient. But yeah, tell me about those bold moves. Yeah, it's I had to cheat a little with the point of view. Yeah, you're right that most of it is a close third person from either Jack or Elizabeth. Like in the Knicks, I was I felt free to go into a lot of my side characters, but in in this book, I just wanted to stay with my my protagonists. But a bit of a challenge when you're writing a book about self delusion. That like, how do you let the reader know that the characters, there's there's some truth about the characters that the characters don't know about them themselves. You know, <laughs> it's yeah, it was, right. it's very hard to communicate that. And and so, you know, occasionally I would cheat a little with the point of view. So there's this moment where where Jack is growing up and he has to go to the hospital because he's running a fever and he's sick. And in that chapter, I'm, I sort of describe like what is happening in his mind growing up in the house that he's growing up in. But, but it's very clear that he himself does not know that this is happening in his mind. It's just like he's a toddler and this is just the story he tells himself about how to survive in his house. And yeah, it's not something that he would ever know, but I just kind of cheated and slipped into a, a more omniscient point of view. And then you're right in the algorithm section, I do that again. I It's this, for anyone who hasn't read it, it's it's a section that dramatizes 
the dissolution of, a, of the of the relationship between Jack and his father, and it's sort of told from the point of view of the Facebook algorithms that are making them fight. That was one of those that I, as I was, as I was watching what was happening on my own Facebook feed, you know, starting around 2015, and then of course through the 2016 election, and then COVID kind of supercharged it all. I was horrified by these relationships that I that I had had with people who, in real life, seem perfectly reasonable and wonderful humans. Online started just you know posting the worst garbage of the internet, and I was like, how does that happen? Like. I want to know how that happens and light bulb moment for me. And there has since been a lot of good journalism about this. And so I'm not like breaking any news here, but like the light bulb moment for me was I was, uh, you know, arguing with one of my friends on Facebook, I would, he would post something and I would like private message him and, and try to <laughs> basically talk him out of it. And then I noticed Facebook started giving me more and more and more of that kind of content. And, and I realized one day I was responding to one of his posts. And then I realized that the post was like three or four weeks old. And I just missed it the first time around. And Facebook had put it right at the top of my feed so that I would see it first. And I was like, oh, my God, Facebook is, like does not care that that. I'm like my relationship with my friend is being ruined because of this. It's just like, here, do you want more? Do you want more? And, and so I really wanted to engage with that dynamic and I wanted to understand what was going on with Facebook. So Facebook of course is really hush hush about its algorithms, but they have patented all of them. And in the patent applications, obviously you don't get the programming or the math, but you, you, you do get like long descriptions of why a certain patent application, why a certain algorithm is necessary and, and is important. You can kind of get a sense of what Facebook is up to by reading their patent applications, which are public, public domain. So I, I read hundreds of pages of very dry Facebook patent applications to get a sense of like the underlying math and the underlying dynamics and like what they're trying to do. And, and a lot of that information made it into the, into the algorithm section. Um, it's called the needy users. And it's just a, a, a sort of deep dive into the dynamics of online communication and how that can ruin a relationship. When you are working with technology that, you know, as we're sitting here is changing under our feet so fast. Do you have to, so you, I mean, you fix this in a particular point in time and sort of, you know, I, I guess you kind of have to seal your characters in amber at particular yeah. times so that you don't let the technology sort of slip out from under you <laughs> and change everything. Yeah. That, yeah. Was that, was that an issue? Yeah, it is. And it's why I set the book in 2014. I didn't want to, to have to, be responsible for how technology changes, you know, like the fact that Twitter is now called X, right, <laughs> you know, like right. would, would, would be a problem. Like those, those types of things would be an issue. So 2014 also is not that long ago, but feels like a different era, you know, yeah. now. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't want to, I honestly, I wanted to be able to talk about the dynamics that we saw during the pandemic, but I didn't want to talk about the pandemic itself. Cause I, I found that when I would speak about the pandemic, like people's tackles would get get up and and minds would close and so it was very difficult to talk about anything that was going on in that moment when i was writing it without kind of triggering a polarized response but i i realized that like back in 2014 like we went through a trial run of all of this with the ebola panic and all the conspiracies that kind of came out around that i was like well i'll use that and that's that's my stand in for the pandemic and mm. and uh, and i'll use i'll use kind of early facebook as a stand in for like social media now and place it in this very specific time where I kind of don't have to worry about these more contemporary issues kind of overpowering it rhetorically, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that was what was so fun about the Knicks and so fun about this is that, you know, society itself is such a major character in the book and your ability to bring the real world in, but not kind of overwhelm us with it. Like, mm -hmm. right, but right before I started reading this, I went to a talk by Amor Tolls, and he was talking about the way he thinks of his novel is like the stage of a play. And in the foreground, you have a couple sitting at a table, dining room table. And then in the way background, you know, you have the room they're in, and then you have the window, and the window's looking out on these trees. And the trees are really brush stroked with, you know, like, impressionistic like they're barely there but we understand the trees are out there and it kind of gives them a sense of movement 
painting mm-hmm. like that. But the things in the foreground are very hyper-realistic. And it's like, that's how I approach my novel. You know, if I'm writing about Russia, I just have these really broad general brushstrokes that suggest Russia, but I don't, you know, hone in on specific details. And as I was reading this, I was thinking about that. There's actually a section pretty late in in the novel where you have Evelyn, who's Jack's sister, giving him a lesson on how to paint and how to suggest things and how how not to paint everything, you know, very literally because it kind of ruins it. And I thought that little section, if readers get there and turn to that, is a actually a really pretty good section on how to write. Yeah, um, it is, and I'd I'd agree with Amor on that. These and and hey, I thought. I thought the Lincoln Highway, by the way, was fantastic. <laughs> and, yeah. and yeah, I can see that at work in that book. Yeah, I think Evelyn's point there is not to strangle the image, but sort of let it breathe. And I think in writing, there's, I think there's a caring capacity for just how much a reader's brain can handle at any given time. And, and there's actually been kind of interesting psychological research on this that like, that if you give someone three physical details in a paragraph, they can hang on to that. But if you start giving them four or five, they will actually lose the image and, and later will report to the researchers that it felt less descriptive the more description you give. <laughs> so oh, like, you, yeah, you, you can't go beyond the carrying capacity of someone's imagination. And so, yeah, so you have to pick the details that that are going to evoke um, something. And the, and the thing I like to tell my students is that is that the novel is really just enough to allow the reader to cross a certain gap with their imagination. So like they're, they're you know, they're, they have this image in their head and they're, they're reading your book and there's a gap between them and you have to give them just enough that, that they can fill in that gap. But if you start overpower, if there's no gap, if you overpower that, then it doesn't, it's not the same experience. And if you don't give them any information, well, there's nothing to fill in. So it's all gap. It's just, it's about finding the, the, the little pieces that's just enough to evoke the whole thing. And, and, and that's the real that's the real art of it. And then in certain points, you go way into a super hyper detail. So there's a section pretty early on in the book called The Unraveling, where Elizabeth is dealing with a toddler. And if anybody has had a toddler, it's so <laughs> ridiculously spot on. And it's, it's just like this minute by not really second by second torturous interaction with her toddler <laughs> and so yes yeah, so then you know when to you know dive deep 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 down and uh, give the reader this claustrophobic experience yeah but the claustrophobic is happening via the drama not via the 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 situation like the situation is always very clear like they're in the kitchen there's elizabeth there's toby and there's a plate of food and that's it you know and so like the picture is always very simple and then where you can play is what's happening in, in Elizabeth's mind and what's happening between them and the complications of that, you know. But so as long as I feel like as long as a reader can situate themselves very, very easily, you know, then you can start playing with that detail. So, you know, it's a plate. It begins as a plate of food. And then a little bit later, I, I modulate and I'm like, OK, this is what's on the plate of food. And then there's this and then there's that. And I start kind of diving into it a little more so rather than expansive Rather than being uh, expansive in your details, you start kind of diving into them. You start going deeper into the details that that are already familiar to your reader, if that makes sense. Yes. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. You're, I don't think you're a parent, and I'm certain you're not a mother. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. Neither of those things. Um, but yeah, that section, and I'm honored that you, you related to it. That section uh, was inspired by the fact that all of my very closest friends that I, uh, uh, you know, that that my wife and I would would travel with, would party with, would cook dinners for, like these these four or five other couples that were our closest friends in the world, all had kids at exactly the same time, um, like within a couple years of each other. And we had, and we did not. Uh, and so we had this sort of front row seat for for what parenthood is like. And and we would <laughs> we would we would go over to our to our friends' places, and and we would try to do this thing when you know it's very hard to see see parents who are, you know, trying to just get through the weeds of childhood and they just don't have much time. And so we would, we would just kind of stop up, pop over, you know, with a, with a drink in hand right after bedtime and right before they would pass out for the night, just to get like 45 minutes of FaceTime in with our friends. And we would ask them how it's going. 
And they would, they would be like, I'm failing. I'm failing. I'm, this is too hard. It's ter- I'm terrible at this. And I would be like, why? And, and they would point to some small detail in the day. And like, I, you know, I was, I was too short with them uh, in this moment, or I let them have more, too much screen time, or I made some promise last week that I forgot to keep or something like that. Some, some worry. This was the thing that their kids would remember forever. And they were also by my eyes, like when I would, I would watch them, you know, I would, I, I would think that they were amazing parents. I would think that they are putting their whole heart and soul into this project, that they are bringing all of their capabilities and all of their energy to this. And they were doing the very, very best they could in a very difficult situation. And, and, and that was not the story they were telling themselves. Like to me, they were huge successes to, to them in their own minds. They were huge failures. And uh, there was this, this tension there. And, and so they were also, by the way, like most of them are, are musicians, like, my wife is a is a classical musician. She plays in the in the symphony orchestra here, and uh, and so a lot of them, a lot of them were also musicians and approached parenthood the way like a violinist might approach the violin, which is like you know this is something that I can rigorously <laughs> prepare and practice for and then dominate, you know, <laughs> and right. that's just not parenthood, and it was driving them crazy, and uh, and yeah, so that chapter, uh, the unraveling, is just kind of based on on my observations of my friends who were trying their very best to make the best decisions they possibly could about how to be a parent. And it just kept on backfiring and it just wasn't working out and they felt like failures and it was all too much. And I just wanted to try to capture that in that chapter, which is, yeah, it's like one hour of childcare of like toddler childcare. And it takes what, 30 pages or something like that. Yeah. Well, and it's such a brilliant commentary uh, b- between the generations. I mean, I was born in 71 and, you know, the the way I was parented, I mean, my mom might have read Dr. Spock, or, you know, yeah, at least right. the first yep. chapter. That was it. And the other b- brilliant thing that you did in here that I wanted to point out that writers can play with are these footnotes. So that yeah. chapter is filled, filled with brilliant citations of clearly all the reading Elizabeth has done to try and get this exactly right. And the way she's twisting herself into these knots. And um, I had just finished Angie Kim's book, which is also filled with footnotes. And I was like, man, I wouldn't think editors would go, but it is so descriptive of the character and how they think and how they, you know, she's a researcher. That's what yeah, thank you. Yeah, and I I thought I had this idea. I mean, I was reading psychological studies for for writing Elizabeth's character. She is she's a brilliant scientist, and so I was I was doing a lot of research. And I thought, you know, she is she is so smart that she's one of those those folks who, you know, when presented with a, a parenting dilemma, would would recall in the Rolodex in her mind immediately the study that would would be appropriate to cite in this moment. Uh, and and so she's trying to make sure that her parenthood is is backed up by the best research. Uh, and so I thought, <laughs> but wouldn't it be funny if every time she was presented with a dilemma, she cited in her mind like the study that that is relevant. And so then I put it on the page. And then and then after that, I was like, well. Uh, start playing with this and start doing it all over the place. And, and I also decided that all those studies needed to be real. They, they all needed to be actual studies because, you know, one of the, one of the problems that I think the book is, is, is grappling with is, is the problem of information. And like, we know, we know that people can be misled by misinformation or disinformation. We know that people can be misled by information that's false, which is part of Jack's father's problem in, in the algorithm section. But you can also be misled by information that's true, you know, if if that information is is given to you without context and without wisdom, you know. So Elizabeth's problem is not misinformation, it's information overload. That there's so much stuff. And I think we all we all face this right now. We are we all are at the end of a fire hose of information and it's so hard to contextualize it and understand like what matters and what doesn't. And, uh, and, and so that's, that's her issue. So yeah, I thought I'd, I would sort of overwhelm both Elizabeth and the reader in research in that section to sort of demonstrate what we're all dealing with all the time. So brilliant. Yeah. I mean, this, this novel shows so many different ways that you can communicate with your reader. I mean, in some places you play with the font in some places, uh-huh. Jack is a photographer, and we have photography dividing up all of the sections. I heard you did those photos. 
did I you did, make those yeah, photos? Yeah. Oh my god! I wow. did make those photos. Yeah, the, yeah. Jack Jack is a sort of avant garde photographer who plays with this this technique called the chemogram, which is where you take uh, um, a photo paper and expose it to uh, the chemicals of like black and white um, photo developing, but without without exposing the image to light. Uh, and so the chemicals themselves will create interesting designs and patterns if you do it in water. And uh, and so. Yeah, I, I wanted him to have that have that job, that, like that have that practice. And in order to describe it well, I, I was like, well, I'll just I'll make some of these myself. And so I built this little dark room in my garage. This was during the pandemic, by the way. So like every, everybody else had like sourdough bread, and this was my hobby. And I would make these photochemograms, and and some of them looked so cool that I was like, well, why not just put them in the book? So yeah, the chemograms that you see that are attributed to Jack in the book were actually made by me in my garage. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, it's just so great how you can, all the different ways you, it, both in the Knicks and in this book, figured out how to communicate with the reader in really experimental, unconventional, fun ways. So that, that was I, cool. I, I feel like that's a part of my part of my contract with the reader for writing very long books is that they should feel very like fun along the way and a lot like, there should be a lot of different experiences like if, yeah. if you're going to read a 600 page book it should feel like you know like a roller coaster <laughs> yes and i both read i i keep doing this now i both read and listened to it and your narrator also i was like how is he going to translate these different fonts and scripts and by god he did <laughs> he did i know i know they yeah that that section that you're talking about with the different fonts my producer emailed me about that and she was like how do you want to deal with that <laughs> I was just like I have no idea and so I was just like I'll leave that up to your creative you know idea you know capacities and and then I I listened to what they did what the the narrator is, is named Ari Fliakos and he's just he's brilliant and uh and I listened to what they did in that section I was like I would have never thought of that and it's perfect oh he was a quintessential actor he was fantastic yeah, he's so good yeah. Yeah. He he narrated the Knicks too. He did the audiobook from the Knicks too. And he's yeah, he's 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 unbelievable. I'll have to go back and listen to that one. I, yeah. I only read that one. Okay. Lastly, so we last time we talked a lot about Scrivener, your use of that. And it sounds like yeah. you're still using the cork boards. Is Scrivener still was that a big part of yeah, <laughs> this book yeah, that's, still? Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's yeah, same, same thing. Like uh the the cork the virtual corkboard in Scrivener matched the one on my on my on my wall. Yeah, yep. that does seem like an indispensable writing tool. I just like how modular it is. It's it's uh, I probably talked about this last time, but yeah, it's just I I that you can so easily just move chapters around and then export the whole thing and just kind of reread it and see what it feels like when something's just in a different spot. It makes it so easy. Yeah. Are there things that you learned through the writing process of this one? It sounds like you approach this one a little bit different than you approach the Knicks. Are there things that you will do different in the next novel based on things you learned writing wise in this one? I think with this one, there was a lot of obviously um, scaffolding around the present main story. And, and by that, I, I just mean the the marriage story in the present, you know, Jack and Elizabeth are, are in midlife and they're sort of reassessing their work and their marriage. And that reassessment, it provides sort of the, the forward momentum most of the time for the, for the book. And then there's a lot of scaffolding around that. But for that momentum to work, I really needed to, I don't know, make it persuasive um, that, you, that, you know, create moments that you would remember, you know, even if there's suddenly a 60 page what you might call flashback interrupting it, you know? And, uh, and yeah, so for that, for that part of the story, I really, I really leaned on a lot of the stuff I learned actually from screenwriting, you know? So with the Knicks, uh, I was, I had the honor of, of working with, uh, with some, with a screenwriter named John Logan, who's just a brilliant, brilliant man and very collaborative and just kind of talking about his process and the way he approaches story and drama and uh, screenwriters have to be so incredibly precise and quick and like find action and emotion uh, within a page or two. And that kind of efficiency and economy is something I really, it's, it's hilarious for me, author of two 600 page books to say that I admire their efficiency and economy, but I really do. <laughs> and so, so yeah, so I think those, those lessons start, you know, I feel like are appearing a, a bit in wellness and uh, I'd like to, I'd like to play with that a little bit more. Yeah. I'm so proud of myself for not giving away any spoilers. I'm just going to leave people with the word. I'm, I'm going to leave people with the word bats. 
<laughs> oh god <laughs> that's great <laughs> when you get to the bats you'll say nathan how did you think of that it's great, uh, it's great. <laughs> thank you yeah i sent that that chapter to my agent she wrote back she's like this is bananas you know yes, I, yes. Me, me, meaning in a good way but yes. this is bananas <laughs> this is bananas yeah i'm like this is this has to be and i don't know how you feel about this but the dance between the subconscious mind and the conscious mind to create a novel like this has to be just really incredible because some of this stuff just has to come out of, you must write that down and be like, where did, where did that possibly come from? And then you, then, yeah. it, but it makes psychological sense, you know, everything makes sense, but. Uh, yeah. It's, it's so funny what comes to you, you know, when you're, when you're in need of it, you know, and, and maybe this is why I like, I, I like writing slowly and I write, I like taking a while to write, write a book because you know, there's this sort of magnetic attraction that happens when you're, when I'm writing slowly and allowing like the subconscious to really kind of fill in certain blanks that, that, that I might not be able to fill in when I'm just outlining on the corkboard, you know? And so I'm sitting in the chair and something will, you know, some moment from my life suddenly appears, you know, like, I, <laughs> you know, like I, I remember that moment from, you know, when I was living in Oklahoma, when all the boys were erasing little, like creating little wounds on their hands from with erasers in order to test their manhood, you know, and mm. I was like, God, that's, that's, I hadn't thought of that in 30 years, but there it is, you know, like, it's a fun and interesting process. And it's also one that makes me have to like, before the book comes out, tell all the people who are close to me in life, like my parents and and sisters and good friends, they're like, you might see things that are that that are familiar here, but just trust me, I'm using them for fictional reasons, even if the facts feel the same. <laughs> like I'm using them, I'm using them differently. But yeah, a lot of stuff comes up, and a lot of stuff that like might have had might have existed in one register in your life, but you can change it for dramatic purposes in your book. And yeah, I do that a lot. Yes, such a fun read. This was so great. Thank any uh, any advice, last minute advice that we should leave people with? You wrote a great piece. I don't know if I already mentioned this. You wrote a great piece for Oprah about how to write a novel in seven steps, and it was very funny. <laughs> and it was great. Thank you. <laughs> I'll link to that in the show notes. It was very great. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, yes, any other advice you have, we'll take it. Any advice? Well, you mentioned earlier in our conversation about about MFA programs and and how um, you know a lot of a lot of writers, especially writers who might not live in New York City or any of the kind of metro areas where publishing exists, that it might feel like it's very hard to get inside uh, the system. It's it's very hard to get access to something that feels impenetrable. And I know I know how that feels. I, I've felt it before too. But but I, I guess I just want to assure people. You know, you know, living in those those small towns and suburbs that I grew up in, that it's it's actually not as impenetrable as it as it feels like. Or that that editors and and publishers are dying for new and interesting stories. Um, and uh, and in some ways, if nobody's ever heard of you, that can be <laughs> that can be something in your column. You know, like great, like what what editor out there doesn't want to find the next big thing? You know, and so they're always on the lookout. And I say that uh, you know, I tell young writers that I. I hadn't met any of the people that I, that ended up being important for me in my career before, you know, they said yes to me. So my my agent I got only because I I read a I read a book, a novel that I really loved and uh, looked looked in the back at the acknowledgments and saw who the agent was and just cold emailed her and said I love this novel and I saw that you represent it and here's a short story of mine and and I'll send you more if you want. And she said, "Yeah, send me more." And and then I did, and unbelievably, she said yes. But like that, she was like the 39th person I had contacted, you know, yeah. 39th agent I had contacted. So it takes a while, but it should. Like the relationship between a writer and an agent, and the relationship between a writer and, and their editor is a very, very close and important one. And and so the agent needs to really, really love the work to want to dedicate so much time to it. And so I, I tell writers that like, that if, if you get a rejection from an agent, it's not like getting, it's not like getting a bad grade in school. It's, it's that the alchemy isn't quite right. And so you should thank them for, for not leading you on and try to find the person who's going to be right for you. So anyway, I just say that, that it can feel impenetrable and very far away, but, but trust me, they're looking for new stories. And so, you know, focus on that, focus on writing something new. Well, and I think living in some of these remote areas of wherever and not New York City is kind of a superpower for writers because people I just do don't too. have access to those places. And it's, you know, 
everybody's curious and everybody's really now everybody's curious about why why would you think that way and so those stories yeah. are great those stories totally are great. agree totally agree i love this that she plucked you out of the slush pile i was uh, <laughs> i'm friends with a screenwriter and he said you know even though the publication rate is you know two percent the those two percent always had a hundred percent chance you know the the good stuff right. is going to get published and uh right yeah I don't know if that's discouraging or encouraging. It's probably probably both, but <laughs> it's a little of both. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just I don't know. Like I I, I know I, I've I've met some you know you know emerging writers, young writers who 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 think that they need to spend a, a an inordinate amount of time like you know with, with their online footprint, you know, with their website and their social media and their 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 newsletters and their cover letters and and elevator pitches and all of that stuff. And I, I feel like none of that is even, you know, a, a tenth as important as just writing a manuscript that that's that people don't want to turn down. So yeah. I would always encourage people just to work on work on the work rather than how the work is marketed. Yes. And especially in fiction. I mean, maybe that matters a little more in nonfiction, but fiction, yeah, the way it's, it's all, it's all what's on the page. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> That's I agree. all you get. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Nathan Hill, this was so much fun. Thanks. Thanks Thank for doing you. this with me again. Of course. Thank you for the very deeply thoughtful questions. It's always a pleasure to have a conversation like this. That was Nathan Hill. The book is Wellness. It is out and available now, Oprah's latest book club pick. In addition to our Patreon page, you can always visit our websites. Barbara's is penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com. You can always visit our webpage for the show, which is Writers on Writing, where you can find past interviews. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, however you get your podcasts. As always, our fantastic music and sound editing was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week. Have a great Thanksgiving. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.